Hey, last week, if you were with us, uh, we started a new series called The Outsider, and it's from the book of Ruth. And if you have your Bible, uh, turn to the book of Ruth with me. And we're going to continue that series this week. It's called The Outsider, and it comes from the book of Ruth. We said that last week that the book of Ruth is a book of tremendous hope. It really is, because it, it reveals man of God. For all of its hopefulness as a book, it doesn't start out very hopeful. It begins with mass. It's out uh, the opposite of hopeful. It starts out very bleak. It, it begins with mass societal chaos, and then it moves to economic crisis, and then it uh, sort of that passage sort of wrapped up with the tragic circumstances of a Jewish woman by the name of Naomi, who in a very short span of time has lost her husband, and she has lost both of her sons, and she is living far from her ancestral land of Israel in a place called Moab. Now, the text that we looked at last week was just really a, it was kind of just a recitation of all the cold, hard facts of Naomi's circumstances that we, I mean, last week and the one that we're going to look at this week is sort of like the difference between studying um, grief in a classroom setting and sitting with a friend who's just learned that they've lost someone uh, very dear to them. And there's a big difference in those, right? I mean, one is true, sitting in a classroom and learning about grief, whatever you learn there, it's true and it's helpful, but man, when you're right there in front of somebody who's lost someone that they love, that is a very raw, very emotional, uh, very gut-wrenching experience. There's a difference between those two experiences. And so this week, we're actually going to get a chance to see and hear from Naomi herself about all that she's feeling about all of the circumstances that she's been through. Last week, just the facts. This week, we hear and see from Naomi herself. And I just want to warn you in advance that there, there, is, there is a glimmer of hope that comes through in this passage this week. But there is still a lot of pain and still a lot of bleakness. And maybe, maybe there's a lesson for us in that. Perhaps when, when we suffer or perhaps when people that we care about suffer, perhaps we tend to move too fast through their suffering to get to the hope on the other side. And maybe part of what we learn from lingering on Naomi's pain and suffering here a little bit, maybe what we learn is that suffering can teach us some very powerful things about ourselves and very powerful things about God if we let suffering do its work in us. Most of us don't want to stay with suffering that long. But maybe, maybe when some very profound things about God. I'll tell you what, let's do this. What I want to do today, I want to zoom in on the text for a few minutes, and I want to just understand the details of the passage. And then once we understand the passage itself, then what we're going to do is we're going to zoom back out, and we're going to kind of get some macro lessons from uh, the book of Ruth and I'll tell you more about that in a moment. Let's, go to, let's look at chapter 1, and let's begin reading at verse 6. That's where we picked off last week. Excuse me, that's where we left off last week. We're going to pick it up this morning at verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6 uh, of the book of Ruth. When uh, she, that's Naomi, heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two uh, daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May, may the Lord show kindness to you, if you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest 
in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. And they said to her, no, we, we will go back with you to your people. Verse 11, but Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. I just want to, let me just pause there for a moment. I want to mention three things that are not apparent on the surface here, but I think once you understand them, uh, it will give some dimension to the story. First, and I, I just have to be honest with you, this, there's something missing in this story that I did not notice was missing last week. And I just didn't, I didn't really notice it until this week as I was studying for this particular uh, passage. But once I tell you what's missing, it'll stand out like a sore thumb. Did you notice that there are no children referred to here in this passage? Uh, no grandchildren for Naomi. Uh, no children for the two daughters-in-law. Now, here's the thing. In our culture today, uh, there, might be any re- there might be any number of reasons why uh, couples would uh, wait to have children or perhaps not even decide not to have children, but not in Naomi's culture. In Naomi's culture, it would be very extraordinary for a couple of young daughter- daughters-in-law uh, who have been married for some period of time, the text even suggests as much as 10 years, it would be very unusual for them to not have children. Uh, children were seen as a great blessing from God. And in fact, if you didn't have children, you were uh, presumed by many to be cursed by God. And so having children was a sign of God's blessing. And the fact that there are no children in this particular passage means that in addition to all of the other pain that these three women have experienced together, they've also experienced the pain of barrenness only in any way, shape, or form has it. Lost her husband, lost her two sons, and her two daughters-in-law have not been able to have children. That's the first thing I wanted you to see. Here's the second, second thing I wanted you to see, just a little dimension to the story. Uh, the name Naomi in Hebrew means pleasant one. And I think we get a little glimpse of Naomi's personality, of her disposition in her care and compassion toward her daughters-in-law, even in, her, in, in their attitude toward her. At the expense of Naomi's own loneliness, she gives, I don't know if you noticed this, but she gave both of her daughter, daughters-in-law an out. She gave them a chance to stay with their families back in Moab, and to, she gave them a chance to build a future for themselves. And I know that probably if, as you're reading this text Uh, All of Naomi's emphasis on these daughters finding husbands to care for them, that probably sounds very old-fashioned to you. But remember that a woman's survival in that particular culture depended upon a man to provide for them. I mean, like there were no governmental programs uh, for women. There were no, like, these women had all lost husbands. There there was no life insurance programs for them. They couldn't get jobs. The The only job that a woman could get in that culture would have been as a prostitute. And on top of all of that, Moabites were despised by Jews. And so Naomi, as she takes stock of her circumstances, she's like, there is no chance that these girls will be able to have a life, a future, if they come with me. And so after all of this pain that Naomi's 
experience, she's still looking out for her daughters-in-law. And she says, you guys go back, go back to your family, go back to your own land, and just stay there. It's a pretty remarkable woman. And then the third thing, before we look back in the text, third thing I want you to see, and pay close attention to this, guys. Man, if you don't hear anything else I say today, catch this part, because this is the key to the whole book of Ruth. Okay? We get a glimpse in those verses that we just read today. We get this, we get this glimpse of women were so vulnerable in that culture. And, and to carry on the family line, the Jewish law provided for widow, widows was something that was called the kinsman redeemer. And here's what the kinsman redeemer was. This is how it worked. If a woman was widowed, her nearest kin, excuse me, the nearest kin of the deceased male, the man that, that had widowed her, the man that, that had died, the nearest kin of the, de- of the deceased male would marry the widow, care for the widow, and he would have to, but it was also to carry on the family line. This is what Naomi's referring to in verse 11 when she says, look, I'm too old to get married again and have sons, and even if I could, you guys, you guys wouldn't wait for those kids to be born. That's what she's referring to. She's referring to the kinsman redeemer law, and she's saying, I don't have anybody out there. I don't have any kin to marry me, and um, she's saying, I'm too old anyway to have kids. That's what she's referring to, this kinsman redeemer law. Now that is going to come in, uh, it's going to be very important as we study the book of Ruth. So make sure you remember the kinsman redeemer law. I know it sounds odd to us, that whole, how that would work, but it's key to the book of Ruth. Okay, let's read on. Look at verse 14. Uh, verse 14, chapter 1, verse uh, 14. At this, okay, at this whole announcement of, you know, just how bad circumstances of what they're experiencing is coming to them, and they just... They just break down and they weep again. And then Orpah, the other daughter, kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. It's sort of like Orpah. I mean, I don't mean to make light of this, but it's sort of like Orpah. Here's Naomi's description of the bleakness of the, her situation in the future. And that, like, you're not going to be able to find another husband. And so you better go back. And Orpah's like, I think I will. Thank you. I, I love you, but I think I'm going to go back. So Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But... Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. Verse 16, but Ruth replied, uh, don't urge my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be separated uh, you and me. We are over 14 verses into the text before we ever hear uh, about this woman by the name of Ruth, uh, the namesake of the book of Ruth. And it's no coincidence that that coincides with this statement of incredible devotion that, that she makes. And so I want to make sure that we take note of this. And I, I just want to show you real quickly. I'm just boom, boom, boom. I'm going to run through these real quickly because I want you to catch this in the text. Uh, five major sacrifices that Ruth makes in following her mother-in-law, Naomi. and Because I, I just want you to see uh, the selflessness of this act of devotion. Okay, real quickly, here we go. The first, at the most basic level, she's leaving her family and her land. Just relocating, that's hard in, in, in and of itself, right? So at the most basic level, leaving family and land. Second, as far as she knows, 
As far as Ruth knows, on the basis of what Naomi has said, she is headed into a life of widowhood and childlessness. She's probably in her 20s somewhere here. And by following her mother-in-law, she says, I'm signing up for a life of widowhood and childlessness. Third, she's going to a new land with new customs and a new language. It's all pretty, that can all be pretty difficult. Fourth, she's making a commitment to her mother-in-law that is more radical even than marriage. Uh, She says in verse 17, you know, where you die, I die. I I, I will die and where you're buried, I will be buried. And what she's saying in that is that she is never she will never return home, ever. And then fifth, and this is the most amazing commitment of all in this, I think. In verse 16, she says, your God will be my God. I have to tell you something. I have a hard time explaining that. And the reason I have a hard time explaining it is that if you think about it, Naomi, uh, excuse me, Ruth, had grown up worshiping uh, the false idols of her land. You know, all the false gods of her land of Moab. She grows up worshiping all of those false idols. And here in this moment, she converts to Naomi's God. Now, it's very, look, I'll tell you what that would be like. It would be like a Muslim converting to Christianity. It happens. That happens. But it's very rare. And that's what happens here. This Moabite converts to the God of Israel. And here's, here's the thing that's so hard for me to explain about this. Why? Why would she do it? All she knows of Naomi's God so far is that he has, to, according to Naomi, he has taken everyone that Naomi loves. What's in it for her? Why would she convert? It's hard to explain. But in this act of selfless devotion, Ruth abandons every base of security that any person, let alone a a poor widow in that cultural context, would cling to. She, She has abandoned her native homeland, she has abandoned her own people, and she has willingly abandoned her own gods. That's pretty significant. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women, alone, by the way, went on until they came to where? Pay attention to that, to Bethlehem. When they arrived in where? Bethlehem. The whole town was stirred because of them. And the women explained, can this be Naomi? Uh, Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And we'll stop there for just a moment. I'm not sure why, in these verses, that the women... Uh, uh, in Bethlehem don't seem to recognize Naomi. I don't know if it's the, you know, I don't know maybe if it's a physical thing. I don't know like if the stress that, and, and all the suffering that Naomi has been through over all these years, I don't know if that has physically changed her appearance, if, she, if it's just taken a physical toll on her and she has aged significantly. 
Or, and, and I, I, think, I think this is probably more likely, I think, it's, I, think, I think probably what's happened is that all the suffering that she has gone through has changed her personality so significantly. Her name, Naomi, means pleasant one, but she's gone through so much suffering that she says, don't call me pleasant one anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter because the Lord has made my life bitter. I, I, think, it's, I think it's very possible that all of this suffering has changed her so significantly that the women in the, in the town of Bethlehem don't even recognize her. I said earlier that these particular verses remain still very bleak. And part of, what, uh, part of what makes it so hard is that it's so personal because we're hearing from Naomi herself. I think you would agree with me that these verses still remain pretty bleak. But I will say this, that the inclusion of Naomi's reaction to her suffering I think it reminds us that there are some incredible lessons that suffering can teach us um, about ourselves and about God if we, let it do, if we let it do its work and we don't move past it too quickly. And let me just tell you what those lessons are. I'm just going to give them to you real quickly and then we'll come back and we'll look at each of them separately. Here they are. First, the three lessons I want you to get from watching Naomi's suffering. The first is that honest suffering, honest suffering glorifies God. That's number one. The second is that when we suffer, we often exaggerate our hopelessness. And then here's the third. When we suffer, we gain remarkable insight into our motives for our relationship with God. Let me say those three again one more time. Honest suffering glorifies God. When we suffer, we often exaggerate our hopelessness. And third, when we suffer, we gain remarkable insight into our motives for our relationship with God. Now, let's just take those one by one. Let's start again with, with, with honest suffering glorifies God. I wonder when you read this text, wonder when you heard this text, I wonder if you cringed just a little bit at Naomi's comments and about the direct manner in which she blames God. Listen, the text says in verse 21, she says, she says, the Lord brought me back empty. She says, the Lord afflicted me. Uh, the Almighty brought me uh, misfortune. And I wonder if that, those are, those are pretty direct statements of blame. And I wonder if that, I wonder if you cringe a little. I wonder if somebody came to your community group some night. And I wonder, wonder, if, wonder if a woman or a man came to your community group some night and they sat down and they said um, those kinds of direct things. God has crushed my dreams and I blame him. I wonder if you would censor him. I wonder if you would admonish her for saying something that harsh and that direct and that blaming of God. Would you do that, I wonder? What's interesting is that nowhere in the book of Ruth and nowhere in the Bible at all is Naomi admonished for this outburst of very honest suffering that she's going through. Nowhere is she blamed for saying these things. And in fact, in fact, I think the inclusion of these verses uh, in the Bible seems to indicate that God appreciates her candor. It's like God is saying, look, I understand how people speak when they're going through anguish. And I want you to know that I'm your God, not because you do and say everything right, but just because I love you. Just, just, I just, I love you. I want you to understand that there is nothing particularly redeeming about false piety. 
you know, all of those people who want to gloss over suffering and they say really glib things about suffering, you know, and they say, well, yes, but God's in it. And I know God means the best and blah, 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 when they're going through suffering. Look, I, I don't think that there's anything particularly redeeming about all of that stuff. Sometimes I think those kinds of statements make a person's faith seem very fragile and they make their faith seem very disconnected from, from, from real suffering. When I read the Psalms, I, 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 don't, I don't get the sense, the Psalms in the Old Testament, I don't get the sense that there's any disconnectedness from suffering there. They're very candid about suffering in the Psalms. They're very straightforward, much like Naomi. Or when I look at Jesus, uh, the night before he was betrayed, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's, he's, it, the text says that he's sweating blood and that he's, he's praying that this cup this, of, of being crucified on the cross, that that would be removed from him. When he's hanging on a cross, he's praying. He, he screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, no disconnectedness, no fragileness there, no glibness about that kind of stuff. Uh, honest suffering where you just... You know, you're just willing to say what you feel. Honest suffering says to everyone around you, it says to your kids, it says to your spouse, it says to your coworkers, it says that you believe that your God is strong enough and your God is compassionate enough to let you wrestle with what you're going through, to let you be human about what you're going through. To, he's strong enough to handle your doubts. He's strong enough to handle your sorrow. He's, he's strong enough to handle all of your anger, even. He's strong enough to handle your frustration. Honest suffering glorifies God. Look, the, the thing that's remarkable to me about Naomi in this passage is that in spite of everything she goes through, she hasn't abandoned her belief in God. In fact, you see it. She, even in her complaints about God, she's still affirming God's existence and his sovereignty over her life. That's pretty remarkable. And I just want to just draw this down to City Church for just a moment because you know, our vision here at City Church is to bring spiritual and social and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond. And we say it this way, through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And look, it is not popular to say what I'm going to say here, but part of being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ is learning to suffer honestly. Not glibly. And not glossing over our own suffering or one another's suffering. But learning to suffer honestly, continuing to express faith in the midst of the rawness of our lives and the suffering and the pain and some of the tragedies that will undoubtedly happen here at City Church over the years. Honest suffering glorifies God. False piety, glibness, all of that stuff doesn't honor God. But honest suffering does. And whatever you're suffering right now, whatever you're going through, I would just challenge you, it's okay to be honest with God and honest with your friends about all of that, about everything that you feel. I would challenge you, hang on to your faith, but be honest about what you feel. And know that God is big enough, He's strong enough, He understands you, He understands humanity enough to allow you to suffer honestly. 
here's the second, here's the second point I wanted to make today. Uh, and the uh, second thing that I think we learn from our, about ourselves and about God when we suffer is that when we suffer, we often exaggerate our hopelessness. Have you ever noticed that? When you suffer, you often exaggerate your hopelessness. What do I mean by that? Well, look at, look at what Naomi says in verse, uh, in verse 20 and verse, uh, first part of verse 21. She is speaking to the women of Bethlehem. And she says, don't call me Naomi, she, she told them. She says, call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. And then she says this, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, here's the, here's, the, here's the thing. Without question, I think everyone here would agree that Naomi has gone through enormous tragedy. But I would say that she hasn't really come back empty. She lost a lot. I'm totally get, I totally understand. I'm not trying to minimize that. But she doesn't come back empty. One, she has a God who has directed her back to her homeland where he's going to do some remarkable things in the future. But second, he's given her a very, very unique, very special daughter-in-law whom God is going to use in ways that Naomi can't imagine. She can't see that, though, her daughter-in-law. She's not seeing how special her daughter-in-law is in this moment. And you can understand it, I can understand it, that in all of the tragedy that she's been through, she's lost sight of the source of her hope. She's lost sight of God's blessings in her life. When she, when she tells Ruth and Orpah back earlier in the passage, when she says to them, you know, she says, she says go back home, you know, don't, don't come with me, go back home. What, what's happening there is that she's taking stock of her situation strictly from a human perspective, and she says, there is no hope at all. Oh, but I'm here to tell you, there is hope. There is hope. She doesn't know it, but there is hope. And look, I want you to know this morning, if you're suffering, and so I don't know how you're suffering, but if you're suffering this morning, I want you to know that there is hope. And I want you to know that if, in fact, that if you look hard enough right now, in fact, if you look hard enough at your life, you'll probably see some ways that God is caring for you and holding you up in the midst of your suffering, even right now. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't forsaken you. No matter how bad it feels, no matter how bleak it looks right now, there are signs of grace somewhere in your life if you will notice it. And I'll say more about that in just a moment. But they are there right now. God is doing things right now. If you'll just pay attention, if you'll look, he's doing stuff right now. I want you to know if you're suffering, there is hope. We tend to exaggerate our hopelessness when we suffer. But there is hope. Here's the third thing. third thing we learn. And that is that when we suffer, we gain remarkable insights into our motives for our relationship with God. I said that a moment ago. Now, what do I, what do I, what do I mean by that? Well, here, here's, here's what I mean. Let me ask you a question. When God doesn't come through for you in the way that you think he should, when he doesn't answer your prayers, when he doesn't prevent pain uh, coming into your life, when he uh, doesn't deliver your dreams that you've had all of your life, and he, he doesn't come through for you, and he doesn't deliver those dreams, how do you react? In other words, the question is, here's, here's really the question. 
Do you worship God because he's useful? Or do you worship God because he's worthy? There's this, there is this fascinating scene. It's in the book of Job. And in this particular scene, we get a chance to see Job in the throne room of God. And Job begins to taunt God. And, excuse me, Satan begins to taunt God, not Job. Satan begins to taunt God. And he points out Job. Satan points out Job. And he asks God uh, this horrible, piercing question. That it, It's also an accusation. And, and here's the question that he asks. Satan asks God, he says, does Job serve God for nothing? And what's so piercing and what's so horrible about that question is that there's, there is, there's truth in the accusation that he's making. And it's a truth about Job and it's a truth about all of us. And what Satan is saying, what he's accusing, is he's, he's saying this. He's saying, he's saying, look at Job and look at, look at all of these people who claim to worship you, God. And he says, the only reason that they serve you is because you bless them. He's saying, he's saying the only reason they serve you is because you answer their prayers. Uh, they, don't, they don't really serve you just because they serve you. They, they serve you because they see you as a means to an end. They're not really serving you. They're serving themselves, and you're their meal ticket, God. And he says, he says to God in this passage, he says, he says I'll prove it. Take away the meal ticket. Uh, plunge them into darkness. Stop answering their prayers. Stop protecting them. Let tragedy hit them. And he says to God, he says, he says Job will curse you. And he's accusing all of us. They'll curse you if you do that. And again, what's so piercing about that is, isn't it, it is, right? It's true. It's true about all of us. We all start our relationship with God in that way because we want something from him. And that's fine as long as, as, long as he comes through. But what happens when a relationship with God, when your relationship with God, what happens when it yields no benefits to you? What then? And I would suggest that that's when we learn whether we worship God because he's useful or because he's worthy. For all of Naomi's anger and bitterness here in this passage, I, you, you got to say, she doesn't stop worshiping. She's mad, no question. She's hurt. Absolutely. She blames God, yes, but she hangs on. She's still talking about him. She's still saying he's God. She's still saying he's almighty. She's still saying he's the Lord. She hasn't turned on him. And because she still hangs on, Satan is defeated. Satan's accusation is defeated. When she hangs on. And when you keep hanging on to your belief in Christ and your worship, and when you continue to pray, even when God doesn't come through for you, Satan is defeated in your life too. And you can say in that moment, you can say, Yes, I'll tell you what, I would serve God for nothing. 
I would worship God even if he never came through for me because he's worthy. I don't serve him because he's useful. I don't serve him because he serves me. I serve him because he's worthy. I'd serve God for nothing. And you see, suffering has a way of clarifying our motives for our relationship with God, doesn't it? And you know what's, I'll tell you, I said it a little while ago. Here's what is so fascinating to me. Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, who is a complete outsider to Israel. She chooses to worship God, and for what? What has he done for her? I can't see that he's done anything for her. And yet she serves him for nothing. She says, I'll serve your God, even though he's given me nothing. Suffering's got a way of clarifying our motives for our relationship with God. Okay, there's been a lot of suffering. I know that. It is time for a little glimmer of hope in this passage. And so what I want you to do, I want you to look at verse 22. Verse 22. Verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in where? Bethlehem. Third time that's been mentioned just in these verses today. She arrived in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Oh, the barley harvest. You know, the barley harvest. Now, I'm not going to tell you anything more about what that means. And, and don't you dare read ahead in your Bible, because I don't want you to find out until next, next week. But I want to end on a hopeful note here. Because I know some of you are suffering this morning, and it's like, yes, I, I'm, I'm glad that the Bible says something about suffering, but I need some hope this morning. Here's your hope right here. Let me say it this way. Even in your darkest hour, God is working for your deliverance. I'm just going to say that. Even in your darkest hour, God is working for your deliverance. I want you to think about the book of Ruth so far. It is in a dark hour in the nation of Israel's history. There is societal chaos. There has been famine. In Naomi's life, there has been tragedy. It is bleak. It is dark. And yet, they get to Bethlehem just as the barley harvest is beginning. Even in your darkest hour, you might not be able to see it yet, but God is working for your deliverance. I want you to think about something. God does his finest work, it seems to me, when no one sees it. One day, before time even began, when no one was witnessing it, God spoke creation into existence by the mere power of his word. Nobody saw that. He did it. And one morning, when the rest of the world was sleeping, the Messiah was raised from the dead. And in being raised from the dead, his victory over death spoke hope into the world. There is hope again in the world. And you can't see it. Some of you can't see it right now, but I want you to know that somewhere God is at work right now for your deliverance. It may come through a person that you have never met before. 
It may come through a person who is right under your nose. I don't know. But rest assured one thing. Those of you who are suffering this morning, I want you to rest assured that the waves of God's mercy and grace are about to break over the shores of your life in a way that you can't see right now and in a way that you could never imagine. Naomi and Ruth, the author says, with a twinkle in his eye, says that they arrived in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Stay tuned and don't read ahead. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for this truth. First of all, we thank you for the fact that there is hope in the world. And we thank you that you have conquered death. Thank you that you suffered on a cross for the sins of humanity. You experienced ultimate forsakenness, the kind of forsakenness that we will never have to experience. And we never have to experience it because you did experience it. And Lord, we thank you for, for, for the resurrection, for the hope that comes that there is a, that death has been conquered, that there is victory. And that there will be a victory in the very end. And that you will set the world straight. You will set it right. And we anticipate that day. And Lord, for those that are suffering here this morning, I know personally how dark that can be, how difficult it can be, how hopeless it can feel. Lord, would you encourage them this morning that there is hope. That there is hope. That there is hope for their life. That there is hope for the world. And that you are working right now in a, in, a, in a way, in a place that they can't even begin to imagine. And Lord, we pray this now in, in Christ's name.